Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. New Zealand's international carbon reduction commitments require us to, amongst other things, transition our transport system away from fossil fuels. We're talking here about making a very big beast change direction very quickly. Just how we do that, along with transitioning heating and other systems, is the subject of a report from economist Dr. Richard Mead, released last November. It's a discussion paper for Vector, PowerCo and First Gas, and it unpicks the economic and regulatory shifts that such a transition might require. Richard, welcome to this climate business. Could we start by asking you to render the conclusions of your 146-page report into a short summary for us? Sure. Thanks, Ross. And um, thanks for the invitation to speak. Mm. Um, so as you say, it was a discussion document. It's setting out um, the challenges and the policy options for ensuring a transition to net zero in a good way. Um, and, and I mean by good in a timely, efficient, equitable and orderly way, because it seems to me we should care about all those things. Mm. Um, it's intended to stimulate some sort of informed and considered policy debate, certainly in New Zealand, but I think it's um, relevant elsewhere as well. Mm. Um, because it's a discussion document, um, it's not really making recommendations. It's not saying we should pick technology X or you know, the policies we should put in place are Y. It's rather just setting out what the issues are. Mm. What are the pros and cons of different technologies? What are the pros and cons of different policy instruments we might use to, to have a good transition? Mm. Um, and then talks about you know, what, how do we approach this? How do we think about which way we might want to apply these tools and, and um, resolve the sorts of challenges that come up? Um, because we've got different technologies to think about. Um, we're covering a range of sectors in the report, um, but it's really focused a lot on transport because that's where I think the, the issues are most pronounced for New Zealand and elsewhere. You know, we're a small country of 1.7 million households. Mm. We're trying to convince those households to switch their 3.5 million passenger vehicles to something net zero in mm. less than 30 years if we're going to hit this target by 2050. Mm. Um, and, and we want to do this in a good way, right? Um, and that's not a small challenge. We're not um, you're just saying we can flick our fingers and this is going to happen. We have to convince a lot of people to make some choices. Yeah. Um, and you know, what's different about the report? Well, there's two things. One, I take very much a consumer focus. A lot of these sorts of studies about different technologies are engineering focused, but ultimately mm-hmm. it's households making these choices. So we have to figure out what rings households bells, what's going to make them change to something that's net zero in transport, for example. Um, but the other thing that's really quite different about my approach is that um, I'm Approaching it not just from the normal sort of policy and regulatory perspectives, um, I'm starting with the proposition that transitioning to net zero, especially in transport, it's migrating vehicle consumers and producers from what you can think of as a strong existing technology platform, which is the fossil Mm. fuel supply chain that we've built up over a century, to one of possibly many new and not yet widespread technology platforms. These are clean energy supply chains, whether that's recharging network for um, and renewable electricity for battery electric vehicles um, or a hydrogen refueling network to refuel hydrogen cars or something else like biofuels or e-fuels, for example. Mm. And so as soon as you you see the transition through this lens, it's raising a whole bunch of really thorny issues that need to be grappled with. Mm. Um, And these are to do with the things that when you have energy infrastructures, these are typically large networks. They have scale economies. They have things called network effects. And these really um, change how things work effectively, the dynamics. And in particular, it raises um, something that comes up a lot, um, chicken and egg problems with mm-hmm. um, with new platforms. You know, the issue is here, if you're going to buy an electric car, a battery electric car, you want to know that someone's rolled out a recharging network so you can actually recharge conveniently. 
Mm. If you're rolling out a recharging network, you want to know there's lots of battery electric car buyers who are going to use it and pay you for it. Mm. Who blinks first kind of thing. So that's actually a very important coordination problem. And mm. it's not just in a vacuum either. We're doing it from the starting position that most people have a fossil fuel vehicle. We've also already got a fossil fuel supply chain that's meeting their needs in a very good way, aside from the emissions issues. And you've got to convince people to kind of step off from the thing they know to something they don't actually know right now. There's uncertainty and it's made worse by the fact that whichever direction they go, they want to know that everyone else is going in the same sort of direction because if they don't, yeah. you could end up being the guy holding the wrong technology effectively. And that would be a- Right, yeah. so so it's a big and it's a complex issue, but it's also one that's we've made before, right? You, the report makes the point that uh, we've had these transport platform uh, transitions in the past in other, in other countries. Oh, for sure. And um, one of the things the report does, which was kind of fun, uh, I have to say, as an economist, not an historian, looked into you know the, the history of major transport revolutions. And I was looking at things like the transition from carts to canals in the Industrial Revolution era UK, um, mm. from canals to steam trains, and then from horses to cars. Um, and these did point to some particular lessons that are quite pertinent. And that is usually the transition happens um, because the new thing that's either much less expensive or much more useful than the old thing. And that's an important consideration because at the moment, could we say that about any clean vehicle technology that we're facing right now? You know, they might be really, really quite attractive in a whole variety of ways, but they might have some problems as well. Not least, of course, they can be quite expensive. So, you know, having something that's either less expensive and a, you know, much less expensive and much better than the, the old thing is quite important. And the kind of flexibility that it gives people is quite important too. Um, but what the the other lessons of history are is that path dependence and initial conditions really matter. In other words, we never make these transitions from a blank canvas. We already build on what we've got. And what we've got can stand in the way of getting to the new thing, mm. or they could actually facilitate it depending on how things play. Um, and then the last sort of big lesson is that effectively, when it comes to building out new transport infrastructures, historically, at, at the outset at least, it was large industrial concerns who rolled these things out not because they thought we need a really new cool transport infrastructure that everyone can use. It's rather they did it because they were able to make more profits out of the existing operation. So if you're a mm. coal miner in the UK, you wanted to ship more coal to the plants that made stuff in the Industrial Revolution. If you're a factory in the UK, you wanted to be able to ship your products more conveniently to customers you know, around the world. And so these large industrial concerns, they had the money, they had these skills, and they had the, the incentives, the profit opportunity to roll these things out for their own benefit. And it just so happened that by doing that, it created opportunities for other sorts of services like um, public transport and so forth that really, really took off because you had this sort of you know, initial momentum building in these new infrastructures. And that became something that, that started to build into other applications as well. Hmm. Um, so we've done this before, um, presumably, uh, in, in almost every case, there's somebody who loses. Is, is that what you would expect here? Well, yes, yeah, possibly. So basically, of course, if you've, you're holding some old technology and then new technology comes along and people migrate from the old to the new, mm. chances are the old just withers and dies. And steamships and sailing ships are a good example, right? So mm. you know, sailing ships withered and died. They, they end up having niche applications these days. There's still plenty of people who like to have a yacht. Yep. It's not like we transport our goods around the world using sails. Um, and so ultimately, some technologies you'd expect to wither. And of course, the market for making saddles and looking after horses and providing <laughs> feed for horses yep. um, you know, declined rather markedly in a very short space of time when automobiles came along. 
mm. because all of a sudden people said, let's go for the thing that, that seems to give us better outcomes. And ironically, in that case, it was also a better outcome in terms of pollution, because, of course, when you had cities mm. that were packed with horses, that wasn't a very pleasant state of affairs. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, did you consider the possibility of, of just having uh, a lot fewer private cars and, and more investment in public transport? Yes, for sure. And, you know, obviously, I think there's a lot more we can do in that space and active transport as well. Um, so mm-hmm. we've built our urban form, our transport networks, our public transport um, systems, et cetera, et cetera, in a certain sort of way. And this is one of these sort of initial conditions or, or path dependencies that affects how we can do things in the future. Mm. We could do more like building cycle lanes, et cetera, redesigning our urban form so that we're all within a short walk of the stuff we need to do, et cetera. Yep. Um, in New Zealand, that's especially especially challenging because we are a low-density population, right? Mm. Um, even Auckland, our biggest city, has a fairly low density by international standards. Mm-hmm. So um, we do have some upside there, and th- there is a chicken-and-egg problem here as well, right? So you know, do we have lots of private vehicles because our public transport's no good, or is it our public transport's no good because we have lots of private vehicles? Right. Obviously, it's, a, it's something that goes hand-in-hand, hand, and we can you know, nudge these things in a different direction does that mean we would all end up taking public transport, never owning a private motor vehicle, um, or all having active transport uh, um, and not having a private motor vehicle? I strongly doubt it, just because private vehicles offer so many benefits that we we take for granted. And um, you'd have to wean us off those benefits to convince us to, to not have them. Mm. You know, could we replace the private vehicles with um, you know vehicle sharing services and so forth? I think there's a lot of um, scope for growing that as well. Does mm. that mean we would never want to have our own vehicle, at least one perhaps for particular usages? I suspect mm. not, because you know taking an Uber is all fine and well when you want to shift a person from A to B, but if you wanted to tow a boat, you know, mm. are we going to have a, an Uber service for towing boats, for example? So, <laughs> you know, we can see that there's, there's, I think, always going to be a role for private vehicles, and mm. and to be honest, and I, I discussed this only in about one paragraph in my report, if we crack the nut on new clean vehicle technologies, so let's suppose we get super energy dense batteries that are very affordable or we figure out really, really affordable and effective ways of using hydrogen or some other fuel um, to have uh, clean vehicle technologies, we're not going to be stopping at road transport. We're going to be flying. And mm. so it's possible we're going to all ditch our, well, ditch our second car, hold on, to our, hold on to our big car to, for towing the boat or going on the family holiday. But for the short trips, we might be Ubering in flying vehicles if we can get the energy density um, and the affordability dimensions sorted out. Yep. Because that would be a transport revolution, right? So if yes. all we're doing is, is replacing um, dirty vehicles with clean vehicles on the road, you still have the same speed limits and you still have the same sort of congestion problems. Mm. Um, but if we were able to fly, then all of a sudden it's a, a totally different sort of proposition. And I could see that as being a, a true revolution in transport. Decarbonizing is revolutionary. It's super hard. Mm. But in terms of offering transport users something obviously more compelling than what they've already got, it seems to me that flying would be driving on the road. Right. Okay. So ab- absent that compelling uh, alternative technology, uh, you're proposing that uh, large vested interests take the lead and that we have the policy tools to make it worth their while. So is, is that a fair summary of, 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 of where the report takes us? That's certainly one of the alternatives. So effectively, mm. if we look at the lessons of history and if we look at actually what's going on already, Mm-hmm. You can see that large industrial concerns might roll out the sort of clean energy infrastructures we need to transition people to uh, you know, a cleaner transport system. Mm-hmm. They might roll it out for their own purposes. And you know, the example at the moment is Tesla and Ford are rolling out recharging networks in the US. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they sell more electric cars, right? Yes. So um, yeah. they're not doing it because they're going to make lots of profit off the network per se. 
mm. and doing it because they make more profit off their car manufacturing business. Um, and that's so in some countries around the world, that, that's already a driver of change. Whether mm. or not that's going to you know mean that this becomes the dominant technology and it will stay that way, that's another question, right? But um, mm. we can see how this will, will help with the, the uptake of battery electric cars to have large industrial concerns who make more money out of rolling out the infrastructure, rolling out that infrastructure. Now, does that mean that there's always going to be the, the way in countries like New Zealand, we don't have a large um, vehicle manufacturing sector at all. Mm. Um, and we don't even have that many other large industrial concerns who might be a natural party to roll out the sort of clean energy infrastructures we're talking about yep. um, for their own purposes. We do have some examples, of course. We've got the Heringer joint venture, which is a, a hydrogen joint venture looking at heavy transport applications of hydrogen and rolling mm. out a, a limited network for that. Um, and they've got some users of the infrastructure as well as some providers of the infrastructure as part of the joint venture. You know, this is perhaps the genesis of a, a hydrogen energy network being rolled out, mm. at least to some degree, certainly for the heavier applications. Um, though, of course, if you can roll it out for the heavy applications, why would you stop there? Why wouldn't you try and exploit scale economies and network effects by continuing to roll it out to other applications as well? Right. So there is the possibility, even in New Zealand, that we might have some you know, larger industrial concerns leading the way. But it's possible that they might they might not um, have the legs, as it were, to, to do this. Mm. And so one of the other possibilities I've talked about is, well, how might we somehow recruit the interests of um, the existing operators, the operators that already have very large infrastructures in place, and maybe convince them that converting their infrastructures, think about the, the fossil fuel supply chains, right, and gas and, and gasoline and so forth, um, you know, how do we somehow recruit them to see that the way forward is to convert their existing networks into clean energy networks? Um, and the reason why that could be very, very interesting, of course, is that you don't have to build out a whole new network. Right. Imagine if you had to reestablish our, our current petrol station network, where we've actually got hazardous sites built up in, in you know, urban areas. Under our current resource management legislation, how easy do you imagine it would be to try and roll that out from scratch right now? Mm -hmm. um, but the fact we've already got it there, it's in place by extent right. of history, this could be a leg up, as it were, for getting to a clean energy infrastructure. Mm -hmm. If we can somehow convince these players to, to go there, the big question, of course, is do they want to? Might mm -hmm. they just want to impede the transition, in fact, and just maintain the status quo? How about we just keep supplying gasoline and diesel through the existing networks kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Why do we want to change? Um, and in the report, um, and it was... Curiously, this was really just an incidental effect in the report. So the report's 140-odd pages. I, I committed less than two pages to this because it was somewhat of a, uh, a an idea that came up along the way. Um, but it occurred to me that you could actually recruit the interests of your existing um, fossil fuel suppliers um, to, to lead the transition if you kind of made it in their best interest to do so. When I say in their best interest, I don't mean necessarily offer them more profits than what they're currently making on their existing operations. Mm. But conceivably, you could actually make it so they they lose less profits or fewer right. profits by leading the transition. Yep. And that's a slightly different sort of spin on it, obviously. So, you know, what am I meaning by this? In the report, I go to great lengths to talk about the chicken and egg problem, the whole coordination problem of trying to convince, you know, 1.7 million New Zealand households to replace 3.5 million vehicles with some clean alternative. That's hard enough when we've only got one clean alternative. So let's suppose mm. it was only battery, battery electric cars. There are all sorts of issues that are going to make it hard to transition to even that one alternative. Mm. It gets even worse if we have more than one alternative. If we've got hydrogen cars over the horizon, and if you're buying a battery electric car, you've got to wonder, am I buying this car long term or is this something that's going to basically have a short life because some other technology is going to displace it? And that's going to 
induce quite a few people to simply sit on their hands and stick with what they have. And if we want to achieve the transition in a tiny sort of way, that's actually not what we want. So it, it, in a sense, one of the worst worlds to be in to have more than one competing new technology to, to displace the existing one. Um, and so how can you how can you solve that? Well, one way is just get the policymakers to pick a horse. You know, the government says we're going to go battery electric. But that's obviously quite hazardous. Mm. We can end up making some very bad calls going down this direction. Right. It occurred to me there's an alternative way to try and end up at the same sort of position but in a different sort of way. And that is effectively you acknowledge that it's hard to build out a whole new network, whether that's repurposing existing ones or building entirely new ones. That's actually quite challenging. And it's even more challenging if you're having to vie with multiple rival alternatives. How about we do something we've done in other domains where you basically auction a monopoly right to build out the new technology? And the beauty of a monopoly right, of course, is that whoever wins the auction, they know that they don't have to vie with other clean technologies. They just have to vie with the existing one. Mm. And as long as you set up this auction in the right way so that you have a, a very clear transition away from burning fossil fuels, um, and a very clear pathway for what sort of service levels you want to achieve um, going forward um, in terms of clean transport clean transport alternatives. And that includes public transport, of course, and active transport, not just um, private vehicle transport. Um, you set the auction up in this way and you, you hold the auction, you invite parties to bid for it. If you were a fossil fuel company and you saw the, 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 the scheduled transition away from burning fossil fuels, you know there's a downside to you, right? So mm. that's just happening. Um, and then the question you then face as a fossil fuel operator is, am I happy to just sit on my declining network mm -hmm. and watch somebody else win the auction and build the new one and get all the money from the new one? Mm. Or do I want to be part of the new one as well as the old one? So I can transition out of the old one, but also make something out of the new one. And that's particularly relevant if it turns out it's cheaper to repurpose our existing infrastructures than it is to build entirely new ones. So mm. if you hold this option, you can imagine that the fossil fuel um, supply chain owners could think, actually, we can't afford not to bid in this option because we would hate it if somebody else won the option and then we just sit on a declining industry. Mm. You know, that's Our investors won't thank us for that. You know, we might lose less if we win this option. And you know, this might seem a bit radical, but in New Zealand, we did this for ultra-fast broadband when we rolled right. out to Biden. The government made the call that we want fiber to have fast broadband across the country mm -hmm. um, and the existing um, owners of the the copper network that was used for um, internet were saying look there's a lot more life in, in this network we can squeeze it harder and harder and do more we don't need to um, accelerate the the fiber uptake mm. and the government says no we're going to do it anyway and it turns out that the, the lion's share of the the contracts for building out the new infrastructure went to the incumbent who um, saw the downside in their copper network but they're able to ride some of the upside on the fibre network. Right, so, understood. But but it, um, just the very mention of of, of uh, the words uh, or the word monopoly in connection with um, infrastructure is is going to cause a, a, a an allergic reaction in some quarters. Yeah, I don't know if it should because we have plenty of network monopolies already, and they're all regulated, and um, we tend to live with that. So yeah, mm -hmm. electricity and gas networks are, are, mm -hmm. are regulated monopolies. Um, so that's something that comes up. And, and in my scheme, as I envisage it, you'd have regulatory oversight for how these things are priced. Um, but rather curiously, 
platform competition is one of those areas where more competition is not necessarily better for consumers. Mm. Um, in the report, I go to great lengths to go through the scholarly research, this is economics literature, on platform competition. Right. Because um, it's actually an area of competition not well understood by many economists. Um, so, you know, people like me who specialize in competition and regulatory economics, we're, we're aware of this stuff, um, but a lot of people aren't. And mm. so the irony is here, you could actually end up with better consumer outcomes by having a monopoly, especially if it's a regulated monopoly, because that's, you know, addressing a lot of the consumer harms that you might otherwise be worried about. Um, simply because if you think about the alternative, the alternative could be to just we all just end up sitting on the existing technologies for longer while the new ones slug it out to try and get some sort of ascendancy against each other, let alone against the existing technology. So the fossil fuel um, supply chain, I think, should be delighted that there's competition for new clean technologies. It just means they get to make more money for longer. So um, effectively, by going for a monopoly in the clean technology, you make a much clearer pathway so that all the consumers know, look, if I'm going to buy a new vehicle, which technology do I buy? The answer is clear. There was this monopoly um, option held. And so the answer is you know, that technology or the other one. All the vehicle manufacturers know which way are we going. All the people who service the vehicles know which way they have to retrain their, their staff, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So you create a much clearer direction, a focal point, you might say, um, for how you make the transition. And so there's plenty of examples in the literature on platform economics and platform competition that says you can get what's called excess inertia. In other words, the worse platform actually gets locked in for longer than it should, mm. precisely because of the dynamics of competition between platforms, because they're a messy, quirky sort of form of competition. Um, so by creating a cleaner way forward through a monopoly option, you could actually help to accelerate the consumer benefits. And one of the other ways, by the way, that monopoly does this is that if you think about um, inducing uptake of new technologies or platforms, often you only ever get um, start off with these sorts of platforms because they offer free or even, even negative pricing. Mm. And they make their money later on once they've, they've managed to recruit enough consumers to make the, the, the platform viable, they make their money later on. And so this is a sort of dynamic pricing sort of issue. If you have competing platforms, one platform could you know, spend all the money to make the market, and then another platform comes along and says, thank you, I'll take all your customers from you and you lose all your money. <laughs> and if you're a rational platform investor, you'd anticipate that risk, right? So if you hold a monopoly option, you can actually make it much more viable to do this sort of dynamic pricing to induce uptake. And one of the other features of the auction, as I propose it, is that the auction proceeds should be hypothecated, which is a fancy word for saying they should be recycled back to the, the people who, who are um, using the, the system. Um, and effectively, you do that by making sure that the, the auction proceeds are uh, used for subsidizing the uptake of clean vehicles or for retrofitting the existing vehicles, if we can mm. do that to get to clean technologies. Because that actually helps the person who wins the auction, right? Because all of a sudden they've got a much bigger customer base who can use the network. So I suppose the fact that um, uh, this report has actually been prepared kind of suggests that the transition is still at a very, very early stage in New Zealand. Where, where do we stand uh, you know, compared with the rest of the world in that transition? I think we are starting to roll out a number of the policies that we're seeing elsewhere a little bit later um, and perhaps not with the same degree of gusto as elsewhere. Um, but one of the reasons why I wrote this report is precisely because nowhere have I seen people grapple with this platform competition issue, because I think it's at the heart of how we make the transition. And New Zealand, like everywhere else, hasn't got there yet. We've got our heads around the sort of wishful thinking stuff, right? So we want to wind back fossil fuels. Okay, fine. So let's put in a, an emissions reduction plan that says we wind back our emissions a, a, a according to a certain pathway. 
So we've done that in New Zealand and other countries uh, like us are committing to net zero by 2050, all that sort of thing. We're starting to roll out policies um, like banning new petrol cars from a certain date, what I call a soft sunset clause, which I think is actually really, really problematic. It's just going to lock people into their old cars. Could be really counterproductive. I much uh, rather favour what I call a hard sunset, where you say by some future date, no one's allowed to burn fossil fuels on the road in New Zealand mm. and make it long enough date. Everyone can work towards um, you know, meeting that sort of target. Um, so we are starting to roll out the same sort of um, policy that we're seeing elsewhere. We've got this fee-bait scheme so that we'll subsidise the uptake of clean technologies and we'll, we'll tax the uptake of, of um, more emitting technologies. There are studies from overseas that show this is problematic because it's effectively a cross-subsidy to the middle classes from both the rich and the poor. Mm. You know, the poor end up buying utes and paying the tax. Rich people who can buy new cars, buy a fancy EV and get a subsidy. Or the, the really rich people don't care. They just buy whatever they want to buy and they'll just pay the tax. So this is literally what we're finding in studies of this sort of thing overseas. So we, mm. we are rolling out many of the sorts of policies that other countries are rolling out. Um, but nowhere are we kind of stitching up the, the, the upside transition to the downside transition. It's very easy to smash stuff, right? So mm. it's very easy to say, we're just going to wind back on what we've got. That does not guarantee in any way that something new will rise up to replace it, at least not in an orderly, timely, efficient, recordable way. Um, and you know, the analogy I use, it's easy to smash up a house. You bring in a digger and in the morning the house is gone, but it takes months you know, or even longer to build a new house. Mm. And this is the situation we're in. We can easily smash up our fossil fuel supply chain, just pass a law that says no one's allowed to use a petrol station anymore. Um, but how do we then figure out, how do we actually make the new thing happen? Do we just sit back and let it happen? Because because of these chicken and egg platform competition issues I'm highlighting, waiting to see could mean waiting to see for a very long time. And when you find the answer, it might not even be the good one, right? So that's actually the fundamental problem we face here. How do we somehow induce the good thing at the same time that we get rid of the thing we don't want and do that in some sort of stitched up way so that we can make sure that our transport services don't collapse, that we've got... We, we take the opportunity to build public transport and active transport more as we transition to whatever the new clean transport options are. Um, but we, we do make sure we don't just smash up things, make sure nobody's got vehicles to drive, and mm. then we're all left scratching our heads about how we get around. Right. Well, that takes me to our last question in that case. Um, can we get you to put um, uh, to, to, to take a look at the crystal ball and uh, knowing what you know about these transitions overseas, um, Give us a forecast for what ours might look in, say, 30 years' time. 30 years' time. Yes, this is where I think, obviously, we don't even know what's over the horizon, beyond the horizon where hydrogen is coming over, right? So we know we've got battery electric vehicles, and they are um, they're proving to be quite popular, at least in a small scale. And short term, at least, you can see that's going to continue. There's an interesting question you know, slightly longer than that. Are we going to see other technologies like hydrogen become so successful that people might think, actually, I'd rather have a hydrogen car, or you know, are we going to find that the battery cars are proving so successful that hydrogen just doesn't get any takeoff apart from the heavy transport applications where they're the natural sort of solution? Um, and of course, there are other technologies that might be popping along, you know, like e-fuels. These are synthetic um, uh, gasoline, synthetic diesel that are made in a carbon neutral way, which you can simply drop into your existing vehicles effectively. Um, if that nut could be cracked, we would be transitioning very quickly to a net zero sort of um, transport system. You know, 30 years time is a long time because I think there's so much technology uncertainty. Um, there, there could be any number of alternatives that come along. The, the auction, the franchise bidding auction that I'm suggesting is a way to kind of short circuit the process, 
And you'd, you'd have to acknowledge there'd be a degree of potential regret there. So whatever solution you go for for the next 30 years, if we, we make sure that this option lasts for 30 years and, and in my proposal, it's not an open-ended monopoly. So that's the other sort of way of addressing the monopoly concerns I should have mentioned before. But you make it a time-limited thing. In 30 years' time, I think all bets are off. Um, we're likely to be in a clean energy environment, um, at least in a much, you know, much more than we are now, um, but potentially with other technologies coming along than we even could imagine of now. And as I said before, we might be flying, not even drying and uh, driving. And I know that's been said along, you know, that's been said many times over the decades, but our batteries are getting better and our hydrogen technologies are getting better. Our ability to make things fly at an affordable mass market scale is getting better now. So in 30 years time, chances are we're changing our urban forms so that we're, we're flying as much as we're driving and we're saving roads for heavy transport. Um, and, I think you know, the big question we would say is probably in front of our noses right now, and that is, okay, battery electrics are doing quite well now. We've seen this before, a century ago, battery electric cars were the best-selling car, vying with steam cars and petrol cars. Are we going to go the same way as history, where they become eclipsed by some new technology, which in that case was fossil fuels um, and, and you know, petrol cars, et cetera? Um, will hydrogen or some other technology, you know, e-fuels, whatever, eclipse um, battery electric cars, because it turns out you can get all the same cost and performance um, benefits uh, that consumers are looking for in a better way through some other technology. Or is this the moment where the battery electric cars actually have their day, where they, they get enough market uptake and they become so compelling that actually these other technologies are kind of squeezed into the margins? Um, so the, these are questions I, I avoid actually making a call on, except I would point out the thing about hydrogen is that it has applications in heavy transport for road and rail, for aviation, for maritime, that battery electrics are probably going to struggle with, and they're going to continue to struggle with longer term because the, the energy density and recharge times are so much longer. Um, Hydrogen is going to work for certain industrial processes where battery electrics just aren't even relevant. So where you need a lot of instant heat or you need certain industrial processes that rely on certain reactions. Hydrogen has some um, role in that. So things like steel making, for example. Um, and so, I imagine in 30 years' time, we will have a hydrogen infrastructure. So the only real question is whether it becomes so dominant that it squeezes out all the other infrastructures, or does it become niche in those heavy applications and maybe some other energy platform like e-fuels ends up displacing batteries or hydrogen in the lighter passenger transport. So I think there's another scenarios there, obviously. If you have this franchise bidding auction that I'm proposing, you'll know for the next 30 years which way you're going. So you will get to a net zero outcome in a way is it the way that will be persisting beyond 30 years? Who could say anyway? So whether we picked one technology or another now, we'd have to allow for the fact in 30 years' time could be a totally different environment with a totally different technology options. And things might be naturally um, being displaced even without any sort of policy pushes uh, that are still clean energy platforms, but they're in other domains altogether and um, they're, mm. they're winning on their own merits. Right. Dr. Richard Mead, thank you for joining this climate business. My pleasure. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us.